Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I am speaking with the author of Early Nature Artists in Florida, Christopher Fossilino. Florida's amazing landscapes and fascinating wildlife were sources of inspiration for early naturalists seeking new horizons. Among them was John James Audubon. Elegant herons, acrobatic terns, endearing pelicans, and colorful rosette spoonbills all feature among his beloved artwork. But Audubon was not the first nature artist inspired by Florida. Mark Hatsby, an English country squire turned adventurer, helped introduce the wonders of Florida to a European audience in the 1700s. And William Bartram, a Pennsylvania Quaker, traveled south to explore the Florida wilderness, where he canoed across a lake full of alligators and lived to sketch the creatures. Author Chris Fossilino shares the story of these artistic expeditions in a collection replete with gorgeous artwork that includes high-definition images of Audubon's rarely seen original paintings. Christopher, thanks for being on. Thank you, Johnny. Good to be here. Absolutely. So this book, wow. I mean, <laughs> a lot of history about the paintings, but we really got to know these artists pretty well. So these nature artists shared with their world at that time species that people otherwise would not have seen on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, maybe even if you think about it, in the northern colonies or northern states, uh, mm -hmm. there were no cameras, but there were those who had the zeal for nature and the thrill of seeking out these birds that were so exotic to them and plants that were beyond description except for a drawing or a painting. And this was the way information regarding what exists in the new world was shared with those in the old world, was it not? Yes, indeed. And this is, you really conveyed something that I loved about this project and about these artists, the sense of adventure. These were explorers and adventurers and natural historians and artists. So I really wanted to convey a sense of adventure in this book. And you absolutely, <laughs> did you ever? Wow. So <laughs> the, book, the book talks about paintings and works of art, of course, but mm -hmm. also is a behind the scenes of these artists' lives and what they went through in the field. Was that part of the research new to you and as fascinating to discover as it was for mm -hmm. me reading it? Yes, it was. I learned so much with this research. That's definitely part of the joy for me. And I read so much more than I ever had before in terms of Audubon's own journals and letters. So that was so fascinating and gave me that behind the scenes perspective as you put it on his work and the other thing that really opened my eyes as I was doing this research and it's something that I think is special about the book is going back to Audubon's original watercolors you know when you see Audubon's artwork today almost always what you're looking at is an image based on one of the prints from his book Birds of America you know, whether you're watching a documentary, whether you're reading a book, whether you're seeing an image online or a reproduction on somebody's wall, what we're usually looking at with Audubon's art are the prints. For this book, we use as illustrations images 
high resolution images from the original watercolors. So for me, and I'm sure this will be the case for readers, it gives a whole new insight into Audubon as an artist. You can see his brushstrokes, you know, which is impossible with the prints in the books. So you get a sense of Audubon really as a fine artist, the elegance and delicacy of the brushstrokes, especially as he's conveying the plumage of these birds, the color and texture of feathers. So that was very exciting for me. Absolutely. And the cool thing, too, for me is, you know, I used to be a tour guide here in Charleston. Um, yes. And you had to learn about Audubon and Catesby, Mark Catesby, because if you were yes. going to give tours in downtown Charleston, you had mm -hmm. to pass, well, back then, and still today, if you want to be, you know, a, a real tour guide, be in the tour guide guild, um, mm -hmm. you had to, you have to take a tour guide test. And I have a master's degree, but the tour guide test in Charleston was the hardest test I've ever taken. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you had to, you have to take an 80, an 80 to pass on it. In eight, mm -hmm. and then the next yeah. day, the way they had done, they used to do it back then. They would take you on a bus, and anywhere in the city, they called your name at out. Um, mm -hmm. You had to get up and talk for three solid minutes, so it was a really hard. Wow! Test. Um, yes, you, that sounds very challenging. You had to talk about, you know, you had to know about Audubon, Catsby, about nature, um, because that's yeah. part of the city history, and it was neat. Mm -hmm to go further into detail in your book, learning about it. And Catsby mm -hmm. is where we start in the book, really, learning yes. greater detail. And he's born into a comfortable life, as you point out. But tell us what draws him to start studying nature and yes. why he wants to start sharing his studies. Catesby is a fascinating and very mysterious character, I think. He's mysterious in that... As you know, his work itself has, a, in terms of the writing, has a rather encyclopedic tone. The Most of his writing is basically just captions or encyclopedia entries for the birds and animals and plants that he's illustrating. So there's a guarded and enigmatic aspect to the man. But he does let us know a little bit about his background at the beginning, he mentions how he always had a love of nature and a curiosity about nature, and that that impelled him to seek new horizons, to explore the natural history of other lands. And then we also have some information where historians have kind of traced him and his family back to a degree where we know that he was essentially an English country squire. And as he became more adventurous and more curious, although he had this very comfortable life and he could have just continued to live out his life that way, he really had a spirit of adventure as well. So this English country squire set sail for the new world to explore, to discover new species. And then in order to share these discoveries, he becomes a largely self-taught artist. So he has an amazing story, and his work is colorful and unforgettable. Yeah, absolutely. And not only is he doing works of art, but he's mm -hmm. studying. And yeah. he's studying. And the cool thing is, is I just, you know, 
you know, assume. And if you've never had, excuse me, if you never had a coach break down the word assume for you, you know, um, <laughs> that people kind of understood migration. But I didn't realize that it wasn't oh, until the mm-hmm. 18th century. Can you tell the audience a little bit about him and migration? Yes, that's a fascinating aspect. Catesby ends up being a fellow of the Royal Society. He has important connections to the founder of the British Museum. And the story that I mentioned in the book or the, the scene that I set as far as wandering through the Enlightenment Gallery of the British Museum in London and seeing Catesby's Scarlet Ibis kind of peeking out from the pages of the original original volume of his book, that was something that I got to experience. About two years ago, my father and I were in London, and I remember seeing this. It was well before I began writing this book, but it definitely made an impression on me. So Catesby was introducing species from the New World to an English audience, and he was also, as you bring out with the question about migration, he was at the forefront of some amazing discoveries. It was really not recognized in Catesby's day just how widespread a phenomenon migration actually is. And, you know, I've read some writers of the period who are on the other side of the coin or on the other side of that argument who are arguing that, well, isn't it so much more reasonable to think that birds would just hibernate through the winter like some mammals do as opposed to flying across the oceans? It just seemed hard to believe, hard to imagine that you know, often small, delicate-looking birds would make these vast migrations. And really, when we stop and think about it, you know, it is amazing. You know, we know today that it's true. Maybe we kind of take it for granted a little. But uh, looking back at how much skepticism there was in the 18th century of migration being widespread, that can help to, I think, renew our sense of wonder about this, about the amazing journeys that migratory birds make. So Catesby was somebody who recognized the reality of migration and the widespread nature of migration. He writes a landmark paper for the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, wherein he argues that, yes, migration is widespread among birds and that it is largely driven by food supplies, rather than by weather, that birds are not necessarily looking to escape cold weather so much as they are looking to find continued reliable food sources. So all of this is very far-sighted on Catesby's part. So that paper that he wrote for the Royal Society is really considered a landmark in migration studies and in the discovery of how widespread migration actually is. An incredible human being, an incredible scientist, really. So this next individual we're going to talk about, and and you really did something great in this book when you're setting him up. You give historical context as to what's going on at the time, the people he knew at the time, uh, with William Bartram. Uh, For instance, like who he knew, they were contemporary and friends with Benjamin Franklin, and, you know, how instrumental the people he knew would be in young William's life. 
setting up his love for plants and animals. But how does William end up going from Pennsylvania to Carolina to East Florida? And what is East Florida? <laughs> yes, during William Bartram's time, Florida was a British colony. We have this brief but colorful period in between wars where Florida is a British colony, was divided into West Florida and East Florida, and Bartram's father, also a natural historian, was the royal botanist for the colonies. So Bartram initially travels to Florida with his father, supporting his father's expedition, and then he returns traveling alone on what would prove to be an even more important expedition. So because of, as you said, the historical context, following the adventures of the Bartrams also takes us into the world of British East Florida, almost, you're almost unknown or little known today, but very interesting and colorful period wherein they enjoyed the hospitality of the Scottish governor who had been born in a castle in Scotland and now found himself governor of a subtropical colony that he describes as being in a state of nature when he arrived. And so he's looking out at this as kind of a tropical wilderness and maybe having his own sense of exploration with that. But then that state of nature, as I point out in the book, is is just what attracted the Bartrams to Florida and to explore the flora and fauna there. Yeah, it just in his zeal for exploration, but also he's a Quaker. He's yes. a, he has a the Quaker background, and I gotta tip my cap for you for letting the reader know this time the the Seminoles were a fairly new tribe. Uh, yes. And, and Bartram, again, is just an interesting figure for me, and he's going to interact mm -hmm. with him. And I feel like if it's not for his upbringing, he mm -hmm. may not have had the fortune in life he's had to be welcome amongst the Seminole people as he was. Yes. He may not have survived very long in Florida if it was not for his Quaker upbringing and perspective. He approaches the Seminole with this wonderful sense of respect and brotherhood, and he writes beautifully about uh, about the sense of the sense of honor and respect that he has toward the Seminole. He addresses very directly the common portrayals of Native Americans as being warlike, and he's able to address this from a Quaker perspective and essentially ask his audience. Who isn't? <laughs> and point out how the motives that would spur warfare among the Native American tribes are you know, just the same motives, uh, search for glory, territory, uh, what have you, martial sense of honor, the same motives that would be found in European cultures. So his Quaker perspective on that gives him an insight that you know, other travelers would not have had. There's almost a, or there was a sense of mythology almost about him, especially because the way he described, and it's true, if you live in Florida, you live in coastal Georgia, uh, you live in the low country of South Carolina, you know about alligators and <laughs> whether or not has 
no, no. I'll, you know, I'll say this because you used to work at Drayton Hall Plantation. Uh, if you you're uh-huh. around the marshes, you know, hey, they're around and they're coming back in numbers. Um, yes. He wrote about alligators, but the way he wrote about them, telling, being honest about them, it made it seem like he was telling a, a story about mythical dragons or something. And yes, it seemed almost unbelievable to people. Will you tell us a little bit about that? It's a great example of the adage that truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, and you describe it perfectly. It, it seemed to people reading this up up north and, uh, and also in Europe that he was writing about mythical creatures when, in fact, he was describing our very real creatures and actually describing alligators in a remarkably accurate way. Part of what sparked the skepticism, along with the creatures kind of seeming so fantastic to begin with, is this swashbuckling adventure that Bartram gives us, where he is canoeing across a lake full of alligators using a piece of wood to fend them off at times. It's very exciting. It sounds like something from an adventure novel. But it did spark skepticism in his own time and actually has continued to spark debate and skepticism. I argue in this book that Bartram's observations are very accurate, especially once you take the observer effect into account. You know, I invite the reader to picture themselves on a canoe alone in the middle of a lake full of alligators. You know, how close do they... How close do the gators really have to get before you start to have the impression that you're under attack? So the alligators, I I suspect, were not actually attacking Bartram, but they were abundant in that area. And his descriptions of their behavior tally amazingly well with observations of alligators and other crocodilians over the past 200 years. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to feel uncomfortable if you don't know what they are in their behavior, or you're just going to misunderstand. I mean, I'll, yeah. let me try to help folks out with this. <laughs> so, at Drayton Hall, where I used to work at, you would have alligators just come up and sun right beside, you know, we had a, a privy, basically an outhouse, that you would have a seven-foot alligator sometimes just come up and hang out by. <laughs> and it, 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 it would just sit there. <laughs> and, and people, some people were afraid by it. We had one person who came up and said our pet alligator got out. Obviously, that person wasn't too bright. But <laughs> you alligators were abundant and are abundant at Drayton Hall. They'll sun on right. the banks of the ponds at Drayton Hall. Same thing at Magnolia Gardens at Middleton Place. If you're walking by the butterfly ponds or if you're walking mm-hmm. by the mill ponds, they're just that you could you can walk up and be upon an alligator without even knowing it. So wow. his stories absolutely make sense to me. Yes. So I mean, one hundred percent believable, especially if you live in a place where there are alligators, and if you end up moving to a place where there are alligators, and you read about his accounts, you'll say, "Okay, yeah, one hundred percent, I see what he's yes. talking about." And if you go out, yes, and, his- sorry, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. Yes, his accounts are so true to life and so real. And you know this, Christopher. Chris, if you go out into a marsh or a swamp at night and you shine a flashlight, you're going to see a lot of glowing eyes looking right back at you. <laughs> so, yeah. 
One so, yeah, imagine being in that situation in a canoe on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hey, they weren't and... there. They don't know. He's telling you a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you so know. that was Bartram's adventure. And it was indeed a, a very, a very true to life adventure. Yeah. He just, I mean, the story, I mean, this is the book, I mean, alone about the art is great, but the background, the stories of the men who went out and brought, brought these incredible details back to people. So good. And then let's talk about Audubon here. Because I, I mean, obviously, you know, you know Audubon, have some prints from, you know, the original etchings, you know, from, from the etchings, you know, um, <clears throat> the plates rather. Just... You know, everybody knows. If you know one nature artist, this is yes. probably the one you know. Yes. But I didn't realize his story. I mean, he ends up coming from, you know, a, a, a comfortable background. But his journey from that comfortable background, I didn't know his birth story or any of mm -hmm. that. Um, will you fill us in on that? Yes. Audubon's story is amazing. Born in the Caribbean, he is the illegitimate son of a French captain. He ends up being brought back to France and raised there under very privileged circumstances. Then the revolution breaks out. That places his family in danger. That leads us into the Napoleonic era. Audubon, at that point, is at exactly the age where he's going to be targeted for conscription. So he has an incognito voyage where under an alias, he sails to America to escape conscription into Napoleon's army. As a young man, he's now starting a new life in America and pursuing eventually his love for nature and nature art, which had been with him you know, all his life. As a, as a boy in the French countryside, he was collecting birds' nests and even illustrating birds, sketching and, and drawing birds. And then as he has this dramatic escape from Napoleon's armies, he finds himself now in a new frontier, and he uses that as an opportunity to explore and to eventually begin his masterpiece, Birds of America. I just can't imagine the... It's, it's, I feel like an action movie should be made about these guys. <laughs> Almost yes. like, you know how the History Channel has the men who built America and mm -hmm. the, you know, yeah. the food that made America. Maybe we should be the men who drew America. <laughs> about these three men, uh, their their story is just uh, so intriguing. But also, I mean, think about so we know that when Autobot Autobahn comes, you know, and he's here in Carolina too for a bit. I mean, he's welcomed by the most prominent families, you know, as he becomes well known. Um, yes, because that was kind of a you know. Taking in nature and, and enjoying nature and learning about nature also is becomes a pastime of the well-to-do. And it, they kind of feel like it's part of their responsibility to learn, I guess, in a way, of what's around them and to kind of be a hobby. And I'm sure for some of them they were just doing it because they felt like they needed to, but it also becomes a passion 
mm-hmm. um, for some, especially here in the Low Country, um, such as the Draytons mm. and um, some of the other wealthy families. Um, so he was welcomed here, and I'm sure in other places yes. as well. Um, and, and it's just amazing how quickly he becomes, in my mind, well known. But it, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. But he also part of that it seems like happens because even though he's from France, well, he you know obviously born in the Caribbean moves to France, but he crafts a persona for himself. <laughs> Why does he do this? Yes, Audubon, along with being such a brilliant artist and a close observer of nature, he also has a great sense of theatrical flair, and he invents a character for himself. So even though he comes from, in terms of his background in education, this privileged French, this privileged French background, uh, he learned to fence, you know, as a youth. And at times during his travels, he would make money giving fencing lessons to you know, young young men on manors. Uh, so he has this very European background, but he reimagines himself and creates this characterization as the American woodsman. And at the time, the novels of James Fenimore Cooper were tremendously popular on both sides of the Atlantic. That was part of his appeal and his marketing strategy, in a sense. And in particular, when he was trying to promote his work in England, and then he just carries it on from there, he kind of acts like he just stepped out of the pages of The Last of the Mohicans. Audubon presents himself as the American woodsman, this frontier adventurer. And of course, it's true in a way because he was having these amazing, sometimes very dangerous adventures on the frontier. So the experience is accurate, but the characterization is imagined. Because, you know, he dresses in, in buckskins. He, you know, I mentioned uh, the last Mohicans, but you could also think of Davy Crockett, yeah. you know, uh, for, for a modern day audience. That's the kind of character that he portrays himself as. So there's this really fascinating dynamic with Audubon where the adventures are very real, but the characterization is imaginary to a large degree and purposely theatrical on his part. He's a very interesting and colorful character. 100%. All three of these interesting <laughs> characters, they brought so much um, to our understanding of, you know, the, especially in the Southeast, what we have to offer yes. in terms of nature. And you brought up a really good point, too, about the, you know, the frontier. You know, mm-hmm. even up into, you know, the late 1800s, Mm-hmm. Um, and this so far, you know, early 1900s, Florida was a, a frontier. The railroads didn't reach South Florida until, you know, you know, really late into the 1800s, early 1900s. So Florida got to keep its frontier status for a while. Um, it, yes. And that goes along great, Johnny, with your point about Bartram's accuracy, because, you know, Bartram was here in the late 1700s. So he was, this was a, a frontier and in, in many respects, an, a wilderness. So he was uh, a pioneer and an adventurer. And then Audubon, even though Audubon's a little bit later, Audubon likewise has a, a great sense of adventure with his expeditions in Florida. 
just three great three great men and uh i just want to say you know thanks for being on and we you know early nature artists of florida is available for pre-order now on arcadiapublishing.com and it's going to be available wherever local books are sold beginning september 20th um is there anything we haven't covered you'd like the audience to know well that's funny uh johnny i always ask people who i'm interviewing that uh, that same question uh, with my work for vera beach magazine uh, no, I think that this has been such a delightful conversation, and I thank you so much, Johnny, for uh, your interest and for asking such insightful questions. As always, I want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song, and you can find them online on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again to the audience for listening, and I will speak with you again soon.